Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesinov. This week, I can't tell you how excited I am to have as my guest, Dr. Alyssa Apple. I'll explain the precise reason for that at the end of the episode. But Dr. Alyssa Apple is a professor at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. She's the director of the Aging Metabolism and Emotion Center, member of the National Academy of Medicine, steering council member for the Mind and Life Institute, and is president-elect of the Academy of Behavioral Medicine Research. She has a million other hats that she wears, and I really don't want to waste too long introducing her with her long bio, other than to say that I think that Alyssa's work is some of the most meaningful work in the mind-body sphere that has ever come out. So, um, Alyssa, welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak oh, to Oh, thank you so much, Tatiana, for the lovely introduction. <laughs> the main thing that you're known for is your work with telomeres. And in fact, you uh, recently, 2017, I think it was, published the book, the Telomere Effect, New York Times bestseller, together with uh, Nobel laureate Elizabeth Blackburn. Now, I know it's a question that you've probably asked, been asked a thousand times, you're sick and tired of answering it, but just in one sentence, could you just tell those of my listeners who perhaps don't know what a telomere is, very briefly, what they are and why they're important? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, so, skipping the jargon, I think what's important to for people with bodies who want to understand their health is that every single cell in our body has inside of it our genes that need to be protected. And at the end of the genes, the genetic material is telomeres. So they're, they're protective caps that protect our genes. And they're very important because they're well-regulated. They're basically controlling not just um, whether the genes are protected, but how long our cells will live, in a sense. A specific type of aging, which the fancy word is replicative senescence. What that means is many of the cells in our body can go on and divide and create fresh new cells. And that's how we live well to, uh, you know, ideally 100 in good health, that we replenish tissue in the brain and the blood, in the bone. Um, and so the telomeres are protective caps that allow cells to keep replicating, but they are sensitive to many things. They're sensitive to stress, stress signals, stress chemicals in the cell, and they can get damaged and shortened. And if cells shorten too much, sorry, if cells divide too much early in life prematurely, we run out of telomere length. They shorten every time our cells divide. So they're this invisible little system inside the cell that helps protect the cell and control our aging. And then luckily, I think your next question would be, well, what can we lengthen them and what about telomerase? So there is this amazing enzyme in our cells called telomerase that Elizabeth Blackburn and her colleagues discovered. And so this enzyme can actually protect and rebuild the telomeres. So we have a system, a very well-regulated system. Well, if this enzyme is working well, we can protect our telomeres throughout our decades. Right. 
You mentioned there right at the beginning that our cells and our telomeres are very susceptible to external environmental influences. Could you expand a little bit? What are, what are the top things that, that can damage our telomeres? So the telomeres, I, I focus a lot on psychological stress, but really everything we're exposed to, we like to call that the exposome, all the different things in our environment, chemicals, neighborhoods, relationships, uh, stressful situations, all of these things are affecting, they actually get into the cell in certain ways through our nervous system, through our hormonal responses. And so in the end, our cells detect stress chemicals, biochemical stressors from whatever source. They all look the same in the end to the cell. And so when we're overloaded with these stress signals, we have too much oxidative stress, inflammation, uh, or other ways of imbalancing the cell and making it stressed out, that impairs the telomerase. It causes it to damp down and not work. And it can also shorten telomeres. So there are very specific mechanisms in the cell that make us age prematurely when there's too much stress. Too much stress in the environment gets into the cell, damps down on the ability for telomeres to maintain themselves. Right. Fascinating. So all of the things that we know about leading a healthy lifestyle are very relevant also to our telomeres, correct? So out of those from looking at psychological stress, looking at diet, looking at exercise, which of those would you say ranks at the top of the list or are they all equal? Well, it's a great question and I wish it was easy to answer that. And I think it depends on who you are and what you do. So if you are eating junk food, that's the, one of the biggest things you can do is to reduce the amount of processed food and sugars and increase the amount of fiber and whole foods. And that will be a huge biochemical shift to your cells, to your metabolism. If you're smoking, that's your num- that should be your number one focus because that's a huge stressor to the body. We know that that shortens telomeres and uh and then you know so i think it depends on the person to kind of say what's the most damaging thing i do and can i reduce that and then the protective things there's a huge list of protective things we can do so exercise is uh probably one of the biggest um anti-aging things we can do and we've we've found several times that even if you're under a lot of stress even if you're a caregiver, if you're exercising, then your telomeres are not shortening prematurely. So it protects us from all those stress hormones. Wonderful. The telomerase, you said, can actually lengthen um, telomeres, presumably over the course of a lifetime. That starts to slow down because as far as I know, death is 100%. (laughs) So is 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 there um, an equivalent risk of if you were to overextend the length of your telomeres by potentially externally, artificially stimulating telomerase that you then run into a risk of increased cancer? 
yes, it's it's a very complex story. So it would be very easy just to say long telomeres are always good and protective. But of course, biological regulation is complex. And at the other end, when we have too much telomerase and long telomeres, we get all the risks that come with proliferation, with cells dividing over and over, with all of that ability to, if a cell is cancerous, if a cell has mutation, then we're more likely to be able to express that, to grow that, to have that expressed into tumors and cancer. So there is this risk of cancer with long telomeres. And no one has really cracked that story. It's not a simple story because it only applies to some cancers like glioma and melanoma and not as much to the very common cancers. So we're not, it's, um, it's clear that if you have the genetic loading for high telomerase, that does put you at higher risk of these rare cancers. But then you are also protected from the more common causes of death, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, uh, Alzheimer's dementia. So genetically long telomeres protect us from diseases of degeneration and put us at risk of diseases of proliferation. Um, The good news is that no one that I know of has ever put themselves at greater risk of cancer with with the health behaviors, with all of the good things that we can do that help keep our telomeres longer in a natural range. So we don't really worry about how good can we be to our telomeres and will that put us at risk of cancer? It's more of the excessive genetic high telomerase that we worry about. Right, right. Yeah, because it comes down to the fact that the body always manages to uh, uh, accommodate and achieve some level of homeostasis and it knows what it's doing, right? Right, exactly. And when, we, when we're when we in balance and we're taking doing good self-care, we're reducing all of the biochemical stress, we're stabilizing our telomeres. And that's what has shown in all of these big population studies to matter midlife, small behaviors, being a bit more active, eating a bit more vegetables, all of these add up over the decades and matter to our telomeres. Right, so it's a little things consistently over a long period of time. Exactly, right. Now, what I do want to point out that Telomeres are one uh, one way we age and contribute to to early mortality, and we know that from meta analyses. But they don't. Mm, if you've made it to older age, for example, over eighty years, years old, it's not short telomeres that are going to kill you. It's probably inflammation. So studies of healthy centenarians have have kind of pointed to, well, you made it this far. Now it's no longer so much about your telomeres. They are longer. But what's going to predict your mortality now is probably other pathways like inflammation. Right. Is it too late to start? <laughs> it's never too late to start. It's never Absolutely too late. not. Yes. That's- My mother, when she first read the first version of our book, we said, if you, you know, your telomeres naturally run out at 80, they reach the end of, you know, their natural ability to, um, help the cell replicate because they just get in general, get so short by 80 years old and she's 80 and she read that and she was uh, very unhappy with that idea that there's this critical age and limit 
And the truth is we rewrote that because there's so much variability in humans. Um, you know, 80 is just a crude average and everyone is quite different. We're born with different telomeres. We can, as long as we're maintaining them, we can live with them short for a long time, very well. And so they're just one of many, you know, many factors that are happening in our body that are either keeping us healthy or causing aged tissue and disease. And they're, we're excited about them because they're easy to measure. We understand exactly what they do. Um, but they're, I'll just say, small, small but reliable predictors right. of our longevity. Yeah. So let's look at the other end of the picture. So we've talked about old age, but what about right at the very beginning of life? Um, presumably telomere length is something much like the rest of our genetic material that's inherited. How does that work? So there is inher the in genetic inheritance is, is large and typical, you know, probably 50% at least. Now there's something else happening, which is, those telomeres are right there in the egg. They're being directly transmitted, just like epigenetic marks. They're being directly transmitted to, to the babies, to the offspring. Mm -hmm. And so we know with genetic disorders, a parent with very short telomeres, because they have very low telomerase genes, they mm -hmm. transmit short telomeres to their offspring, even when the, when the when the child doesn't get the genetic mutation for telomerase. So some child, children will get the genetic mutation. They'll have short telomeres and early aging. Other children won't get the genetic mutation, but they end up with very short telomeres and a very mild premature aging phenotype. So what that tells us is that telomeres are epigenetically transmitted as well as genetically transmitted. We are parents or, you know, particularly mothers, telomeres in the egg are being are shaping how short the the offspring's telomeres are. Now the implications of that are are large because well we can influence the health during while the fetus is developing, the health of the mother and the nutrition, the mental health is very important because it's also shaping what telomeres are on day one of life. So we know from these cord blood studies that, uh, that good health, um, good levels of um, certain things, folate, estrogen, um, these are predicting longer telomeres in the offspring. And then exposure to a lot of stressful events in pregnancy and poor nutrition predicts shorter telomeres. So it's both the prenatal environment, the length of the, mom's telomeres as well as the genetics of the parents fascinating that that does actually have huge implications and i think it also perhaps lays another burden on on women um because it's it's another area where they get to feel guilty and we have enough of those already um yes, yes. i think it's very yes. much something that that is um on the back now of organizations governments um and uh, and our society in general that that we learn to value that time of gestation and uh, maybe start putting things into into place that can actually support women in that time right right it's it's I couldn't agree more that the implications of this, of maternal health, maternal health during pregnancy 
are tremendous. And it's one thing we can do. It's a critical period that we can help protect and enhance and really, you know, education is one step, making sure that, that pregnant mothers have the resources so that they have enough food. Food insecurity is very, you know, unfortunately very common in, in America, the amount of poverty um, that pregnant women are exposed to, they're, they're unfortunately exposed to a lot of different toxic stress, domestic violence, dangerous neighborhoods. So pregnancy is a time when we really should think about safety nets and more support, both, both financial, material, as well as emotional support. Right, <clears throat> right. You mentioned the fact that these changes can can be considered to be an epigenetic sort of phenomenon. Now, epigenetics doesn't stop just at one generation. I know of studies, certainly in rice, um, in mice and rats, where certain effects can be seen further on beyond one generation. Is that also the case for telomeres? Yes, it exactly it is. And so there are studies, and particularly some very um, lovely rodent studies by Suzanne um, Ozan, O-Z-A-N-N-E, in the UK. And they do show these transgenerational effects and grandmother effects um, in the third generation, manipulating things like how much protein the, um, the mama mouse has will affect the grandchild, their telomeres. Wow. And so, um, and then they've done things like add certain nutrients and like uh, coenzyme Q, and found that that protects the offspring and the gra- and the grandchild protects their telomeres. So there are very fascinating intergenerational studies. There are telomere researchers who believe that telomeres are getting shorter over time when they compare um, older studies to current studies. You know, it's hard to determine that because of our measurement techniques, but it is true that one of the implications of this idea that an unhealthy lifestyle, chronic stress can be transmitted is that we will have these trajectories of, of um, let's just say, decreasing health over the generations. So that is worrisome. We have many things to worry about these days. You know, we have more immediate crises, but but in general, this idea of you know pregnancy health setting up um, babies to be more healthy on day one of life is very important because there is no level playing field. We do inherit some of our health through the epigenetics, and day one, what telomeres are on day one is tremendous implications for the lifetime of that person. So those differences between people are very large. And then from there, there is some control. And what we do does matter. But it, you know, it especially matters what we started off with. Right, right. Yeah, that does have massive implications. I mean, it, for a child who's born in one of these unfortunate environments, and miraculously does have the capacity to be able to switch over to an let's say, an ideally healthy lifestyle, how much impact can they have on their start genetics? 
Yes, I mean, it's a good question. I will just say enough to be worth it. You know, health is so plastic and malleable and shaped by what we do every day. And I've come to, you know, really focus on the idea of health span and quality, quality of one's life and purpose in one's life, because we never know how long we will live. We can't control that. And the longer we live, we're more likely to get diseases like Alzheimer's and, you know, the idea of healthy longevity, living well without disease, without conditions is of course what we all want. And so the more purpose we have in our daily life, the more love, loving relationships, feeling that we're doing things to help the world, these are predictors of longevity as well. So of course the health behaviors matter. And of course we're, you know, we're set up, we're we're all dealt a deck of hands from our birth conditions, et cetera, our socioeconomic status. But beyond that, what matters is how we live, how we live each day, trying to live lightly on the earth, trying to do our best to basically take care of our those around us and take care of ourselves. That's what matters in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to point out that on someone's, you know, on their deathbed, people rarely or ever think, I wish I made more money. I wish I spent more time at the office. But rather, it's all about their relationships and their, their love and, and those feelings, whether the pe- people in their lives are still alive or not, how well they have loved. That in itself is a, is a huge topic because i mean the amount of studies that are coming out now in general on on health the effects of your health um are just overwhelming the evidence is overwhelming that that these personal connections society connections being involved in communities Mm -hmm. is is so vital um i'm not sure if you're aware but in the uk for example um under the aegis of of dr michael dixon who i was fortunate enough to interview a couple of weeks back we are having, um, he's managed to, to persuade the NHS to implement what he calls social prescribing, which is a mm. system where you have uh, link workers attached to a doctor's practice, a family doctor's practice. And instead of having to waste a doctor's time on things which are not 100% medical, they can engage these link workers who literally take people by the hand and accompany mm-hmm. them and integrate them and give them support. And I think this is just amazing and it's going to have oh. a huge impact. Um, is there anything similar? I mean, the, the medical system in the U.S. is so different. I guess something like that is probably not possible mm-hmm. over there. So this system is amazing. What you just described is has so much wisdom behind it, so much um, curative and preventive power. You know, but no, in the U.S., we just wait till people are sick and then we try to manage that. In most cases, there's no cures for the chronic diseases of aging. It's just medical management. So you're way ahead of us. You also have a minister of loneliness and just the fact that that exists, you know, to acknowledge that the, the fabric, the social fabric of connections is important enough that there's a minister overseeing that is such a... Uh, you know, such a wonderful message. And there's so much science behind that that supports that. Um, I just came from a interesting conference trying to understand 
you know, how we can, how we can really have a healthier society. And really when it comes down to understanding what is happening in a, you know, more divisive, you know, political or global level, so much divisiveness and how we see other, other people and how people um, still, even today, you know, there's a drive for being the hegemonic group, the group in power, the master race. We still have this. So, you know, when it comes down to the psychological science, it's really understanding how we view others, whether we see them as threats, you know, which happens when we're under a lot of stress. We, we, other people, we see them as threats. We don't want to be connected and we don't want to have the supportive fabric of, you know, of a, of a compassionate society versus seeing us, seeing our common humanity across people, regardless of skin color and other differences in social identity, religious identity. So there's a real, you know, solid psychology that we understand that divides us. And, and makes us alone and sick and, you know, having so much um, conflict mm-hmm. between people in communities and then, you know, spreading out. So that is, uh, you know, something that it's not that there's an easy solution, but it really starts with how we raise and educate our children and, and educating them and understanding how the human mind works and overcoming our biases and our discrimination. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the level of stress in general in the world is so high. I, I always say everybody's just living in constant fear. In fact, my, I tell mm-hmm. most of my clients, don't watch the news. It's not good for you. <laughs> mm-hmm. it? It's right. It's now kind of a thick medium that we live in, right? Because it's everywhere. It's not just the nightly news. It's coming on our phone. And um, yes, it is a very interesting moment and of course it's in our minds and then ends up in ourselves of course right right the mind body connection is is such a fundamental part of your work using telomeres as a as a kind of a marker for this what what interesting things are you up to at the moment in that in that area well so we have been thinking a lot about well we already know that Toxic chronic stress in many forms, poor unsafe neighborhoods, caregiving, depression, all of these ways of, you know, living with social adversity for years and years. We already know that that shortens telomeres. Um, But the other side of stress is that short-term stress actually is good for us when we feel we can manage a situation, when we mount a stress response and can recover quickly, this is actually anti-aging. So this is this happens in the case, for example, of exercise, and you know, particularly high intensity interval training. Mm-hmm. This uh, happens in the case when we view stressors as positive challenges. Mm-hmm. We recover more quickly. So it's psychological. It's a way of stressing out the body physically. So that's um, a current study is really understanding how can we harness positive stress and create you know, this kind of uh, anti-aging effect in ourselves. And so I'm just running one of our first studies on this, really looking at like an experiment saying for three weeks, if you try these different short things every morning, at the end of this, are you more stress resilient? 
Are your cells looking healthier and younger? Your mitochondria, inflammation, telomeres. So the things we're examining, one is a breathing technique. You might have heard of Wim Hof. Absolutely. Who is, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Yes, the Iceman. So mm-hmm. his method is very interesting to me because it is exemplary of short-term uh, primal stress. It's hypoxia. You know, our body thinks we're going to... It's It involves an... It, um, hyperventilation and or breath retention or breath holding. And that causes hypoxia. That causes our brain or in our body to think, oh no, I don't have enough oxygen. So very briefly, it goes, we increase our adrenaline and then we have, uh, we breathe again and our body goes through a very dramatic recovery. And it's the recovery where I think the medicine is. And I think the anti-aging effect is when our body repairs cells, cleans out junk, our nervous system responds with more vagal tone. So these are all question, you know, questions that I'm saying is this is what we think happens and we're going to be examining this very closely. So we're going to be looking at this breathing method, which is quite interesting. Have you tried it? Um, I have actually. Um, um, I also actually use a lot of uh, yogic um, pranayama type breathing, which also um, they're not quite as vigorous the ones I use, but they also have this period of breath retention in them. So I think that's really interesting because we've obviously figured out a few thousand years ago that that does interesting things to your consciousness. And now it does interesting things to your body, too. Yes, exactly, Tatiana. And that's how I also it became interested in the breathing techniques and and it is you know so much of this is from yoga and these ancient techniques and we know they alter the nervous system in these in these helpful ways um so we'll be comparing that to a more mindful slow breathing Mm -hmm. and to then to um uh exercise high intensity interval training because of course that's a little bit more like the vigorous breathing because it's arousing but it's right. completely different, you know, um, in its kind of aerobic capacity. So we'll, you know, different, these are all different ways we can help ourselves. You might think of them as biobehavioral hacks, but they have different mechanisms. So if we can uh, understand them better, that will be, I think, helpful to people to understand, is this for me? Do I like this? Do I want this? Um, the other thing we're testing is mindfulness meditation, which is, the opposite of Wim Hof breathing in that it's very low arousal. We're putting the body into a calm, restorative state and teach training our mind to uh, have a different mental filter in a sense, have our attention on the present. And we, we think that's going to also improve stress resilience just in different ways. Right. Right. I was at um, last year a, a, a retreat, a one-week retreat with Dr. Joe Dispenza, who I know is, is has been accused oftentimes of, of practicing pseudoscience. But one of the things he did was actually take took a group of his uh, meditators and had a look at their telomeres and was actually astounded himself to see that within three days that there was an increase in length. Now, of course, there's a huge amount of variables in when you go away to a retreat, but whatever it was, it had an effect. I was, I was astonished that it could happen that quickly. <laughs> three days. Yeah. That's what he, I think okay. that's what he said. Or three yeah. to five days. Yeah. I think. yeah. Okay. Well, you never know. I mean, when we started this work, we thought, oh, telomeres won't change for years and years. Let's not even measure them. Let's just measure the enzyme telomerase. 
which can change quickly. And so we did, you know, several years of meditation studies where we, we are, you know, because of our assumption that we knew how telomeres work, we only, we just missed the boat. And we did find that most of these studies, telomeres goes up after several months of any type of mind-body training, mm-hmm. Qigong, uh, mindfulness meditation, ma- TM, mantra meditation. Um, so now when telomeres have been looked at, they, it does appear, we just wrote a review on this, and there's not that many studies, but it does appear that they can be stabilized within months, mm-hmm. maybe even lengthened. And then uh, my colleagues, Cliff Saren and Quinn Conklin, just published a study showing in three weeks of a residential retreat, it looks like telomeres lengthened. And then Barb Fredrickson just published a study showing in six weeks of loving kindness meditation, telomeres stabilized, whereas the control group shortened. So it is po- any of this is possible. You know, I worry about measurement error. Yeah, um, I don't worry so much that we are sending people dangerous messages. I think, I think this is all, you know, versions of of our bodies going into restorative mode whether telomeres actually lengthen whether that stays around for a long time you know we need a lot more rigorous science and big studies but people know that they're benefiting they experience what it's like to be integrated in body and mind to let their nervous system take a break from its vigilant state it's just so important yeah absolutely one thing that you said um, a little bit ago about um, the fact that, that this recovery phase after an intense period of, of what you could call positive stress makes me think a mm-hmm. little. Um, I also spoke to Dr. Balta Longo, who, who is very interested in longevity from a nutritional point of view, and he has this fasting mimicking diet and has noticed very significant effects on several diseases. Um, I think the first study was on... on um, autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, where if you actually put the body through this sort of starvation, he mimics that by just getting people into ketosis, that it's actually the refeeding phase after, which is where all the repair happens. It it leads me to think that this is a kind of a systemic um, phenomenon of the body that, that when it's put under stress that it has this enormous ability astounding ability to actually come back better than before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i'm so glad you brought up that example i think that fits in beautifully into this whole idea i think of this um that fasting mimic and diet as a mm-hmm. positive stress mm-hmm. it is shaking up you know some of these exact same pathways of what we call hormesis or that that positive stress response in the cell and as you said, it's the, in the period after, at least in these mice, he's seeing bone density increasing over time. So okay. you know, they think they've stirred up these stem cells. It's very exciting and hopeful. I was so excited by it. I tried it last month <laughs> and I failed miserably. You know, I'm right at their limit of low BMI. I'm just such a little person. It just I couldn't get through day two. <laughs> yeah, I had so. the same problem, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> there's not enough body fat to go into ketosis and you can't actually yeah. eat that much fat because it's revolting <laughs> yeah so i'm i'm 
I'm heartened you had the same experience. There's nothing in the literature about uh, people like us doing this and failing. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but there's, you know, it's not for everyone. I mean, if you have prediabetes, yes, this is going to do great things for you. Right. But for people like us, we need these other pathways. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I'll stick with my meditation, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what about stress? Because, I mean, you know, you, you've beautifully outlined the idea of positive stress, but I mean, clearly, Really, you know, there's a there's a sh- there's a difference between positive and negative stress. Now, in your opinion, is is that something which is a personality type? Is it something that we can train and learn? Because, you know, clearly people come back from a war. Some people sadly get PTSD, and others don't. So there there is sort of like an innate level of emotional resilience that seems to be built into us. What what are your feelings about yeah. that? Oh, yes. Oh, this is such a juicy question. I have so much I want to say about it. You know, so yet, you know, yes and no. It's uh, it's pieces of both what happens to us, what our personality, you know, and training is and how those interact. But yes, we can always be training our mind to be having a more positive stress response. So let me start with what I think is a very important factor or influencer of whether we have positive stress responses. And that is our early life experience. So those of us, which is many who've had early childhood adversity have been set up or kind of predisposed to have more of the threat responses. And we're finding that in our work. Um, My postdoc, Steffi Mayer has been, you know, finding uh, these these different ways that early life adversity shapes our daily stress response just to be more exaggerated, to be, we feel more threatened in different domains of our life when something happens. Um, we tend to have more of this um, pattern of self-critic, of having negative thoughts about mm-hmm. ourselves. And so, residue of childhood everyone can you know easily understand how that would track through time maybe it's partly some brain wiring and um, habits but all of that is still plastic and I think the point is even if you're set up through genetics or through early life experience to be a stress you know a stress sensitive person knowing yourself is critical being aware that that you are more sensitive than others means that you must take more self-care. You must, you know, you would do well to invest in some of these skills of retraining the mind to be less reactive. And meditation is a really interesting tool for people with early life adversity. We are working on a publication showing that when we train people in meditation, this is transcendental meditation, those who had early life adversity improve much more. So it's a very hopeful story that they are starting off with, you know, a bit more negativity, um, more depressive symptoms, but they're responding to it more and improving more. Even a year later, we find their depressive symptoms are lower if they've been trained in, in meditation. Um, so plasticity, you know, is, is the story and well-being is a skill. So I do think, you know, meditation is not for everyone. There are different ways to train this kind of more stress-resilient mind mindset. 
But one thing about, um, I think, the mindfulness meditation training is just really understanding that we can live in the moment more where we're not under threat. So this, you know, applies, for example, to caregivers. I am a caregiver myself. And it's easy to live in the world of past rehashing or worrying about what's next. And it's not that we're always under threat and coping with a stressful situation. It's more, what are we doing with our mind in between? Life is all about the in-betweens. And that's when we can actually live and be present more and let remind ourselves right now we are safe. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, a very good friend of mine is, is, was a caregiver for, for 13 years. She nursed her, her husband who had a brain tumor until he sadly passed away two years. And uh, she's now actually setting up a foundation and organization to, to help support caregivers exactly in this way mm. of, of positive self-care mm. and, and support for them. Because so often you hear the story that a caregiver has spent a life looking after someone, that person then passes on. The caregiver would normally expect to now have their life back and then probably get ill. <laughs> and often mm. that was mm-hmm. I've heard that. Mm-hmm. So That's often, right. They're at much more risk. That's right. Much, much higher um, risk. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a wonderful mission and foundation. On my website, I just want to mention, I have both under the telomere effect, um, we post, Liz and I posted a f- free chapter on the stress, you know, kind of the positive mindset, challenge versus threat and mm-hmm. telomeres. And then I also posted some quizzes and one of them is called, you know, what's your stress response style? And it's just a simple quiz, but I do think it helps people notice their personal tendencies. And rather than, you know, think, darn, I scored bad, it's more just, okay, now I'm aware. I'm going to be more aware of these thoughts so that I can not believe them or manage them better. Right. I recently read a paper. Um, I'm just trying to recall the name of the author. I think it was uh, Plowman, Robert Plowman. He's a geneticist at at King's here in London. And he published a paper just very recently that was picked up by the New Scientist. And the New Scientist article was entitled The Parenting Myth, How Kids Are Raised Matters Less Than You Think. Because he's very much of the opinion that pretty much everything is genetic, that there are some environmental issues. And we're not talking about extreme abuse, but, you know, uh, looking at things like twin studies would would indicate that actually it's all a a question of genetics. you clearly feel different to that. Would you like to comment on that? I, I, was, <laughs> I, sure a bit, do. <laughs> I was a bit actually quite outraged when I read this article. <laughs> However, I mean, the science substantiates his arguments too. So it's, it's, it's a... Well, right. So Tatiana, you, so, um, I'm sure you think about this too with your genetic background, but when we think about all of those twin studies and all of that... Um, Shared variant in the fraternal twins. Um, here's the thing. They, we think that the twin study is the ideal and we can really separate out, separate out the effects of shared environment from genetics. Mm-hmm. But those twins who were, you know, let's say adopted and never shared their childhood, that's not a test of um, just genetics. They, they shared the prenatal environment. Exactly. And that is, yes, 
So right there, it's like, whoa, we are learning so much about how a stressful prenatal environment is setting up the, the, the body and the aging mechanisms for life. So, so those, are, those studies need to be reinterpreted with much more, um, you know, much less inference that this is all about genetics and much more understanding that we, we are talking about a shared prenatal environment, which is a huge environmental effect overriding that could override this genetic effect. Right. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. I sort of knew you would, but <laughs> um, it confirm my, my own opinion about that. Um, you've also done an amazing amount of work in, in trying to implement social change. Um, would you like to talk about that, the, the soda drinks um, studies and things? Because I, yes, I, I, I find this sort of thing really powerful and so important because it's backed mm-hmm. up by such lovely hard science. So, Yes, I, I do love that study. Thank you for asking about it. And we're just, um, my fingers are crossed because it's under review and we really are eager to get that story out to the world. So with all of these things that we're talking about, you know, these mindfulness interventions, they're, they're so helpful and important, but they only affect the individual. And they're, you know, we're talking about classes that are usually accessible to those with education and, you know, more kind of, they're not too, they're not in the churches and in the community and available to everyone. And um, so I just love the idea of, of people in power, CEOs, or parents coming to their children's schools and changing the culture and changing the customs and the environment. And those are going to have huge effects. So at UCSF, we had this great opportunity to examine it, uh, kind of a, you could call it an environmental change or policy change. Um, so this goes back to the sugar work and the obesity work we do. What we know is that sugar is different. It's, it's like a food additive. It's different than any other thing in our food in that it's creating the most metabolic havoc. Liquid sugar, soda, is the worst thing we could do for ourselves. And it's sadly, it's one of the most... Yeah. Sorry? I said it, it just goes straight in, doesn't it? I mean, it's just... You That's know, it's, right. Yeah. Straight into the blood, no fiber. So it's going right to our brain. We're having a big reward response, some of us more than others, depending, mm-hmm. you know, the genetics do play a bit of a role, the stress plays a role, primes us to have a bigger reward response. And so the, so the liquid sugar, even if you're lean, this can be contributing to our fatty liver and our poor metabolism. And believe me, we don't have as much control, you know, as we're, as we're aging, we may have a normal body weight, but when we're over, you know, 60 and 70 that glucose and, the, and insulin control is weakening and, in, and is raising with age. And so the level of prediabetes is just so high and it's undetected. So back to the liquid sugar. So we saw an opportunity um, to convince our administration in all of the hospitals and campuses in our campus at UCSF. This is a big medical school in San Francisco with lots of five campuses. We... Um, my colleague, Laura Schmidt, convinced the, and her colleagues, it was a team effort, convinced the administration to ban the sales of sugar drinks, get them out. The Starbucks, the Jamba Juice, they could no longer sell sugar drinks. 
um, and the cafeteria. So then Laura Schmidt and I and our group of colleagues just activated like lightning around this. Once they said yes, we had four months before the ban went into place to study this. And we were just had to get money and get in there and measure everyone's soda intake and measure their waist size. And we really wanted to see if this had an effect because while the idea is out there, no one's ever tested if it has an effect. It could go either way. People can bring soda from home. And so we did, we targeted the heavy drinkers. And these are tend to be service workers, tend to work in the cafeteria where there's this open tap. They can drink as much soda as they want for free. And they were drinking several um, several triggered beverages a day. So we measured them at baseline and a year later, and here's what we found. The people who were overweight or obese, number one, reduced the amount they were drinking by over 20 ounces a day of sugar drinks. They reduced their waist size um, significantly. So we were kind of astounded that we could see an effect just by the environmental intervention. And then we also randomized half of them to a, a motivational um, brief intervention where we just talked to them about here's how much you're drinking. We showed them the sugar cubes in a cup and asked them why they would care. What is it for them? So it's really a kind of a getting at their personal priorities rather than just like, you, you know, the idea that they shouldn't weigh as much or shouldn't be doing this. And so, you know, people get down to what matters to them. They often it's seeing. A, a, a family member with diabetes and not wanting that or wanting to live to see their children or grandchildren get married or graduate. You know, there's, there are these things that motivate us more than just health. And, you know, often it's the, it's the relationships. So 10 minutes of that. And we found that those people who had this conversation about sugar had dramatically and significantly bigger reductions in how much they were drinking. So we're pretty excited because while we can't change big soda and big food ability to sell it all around us, we can do that from a private sector perspective. We can do that in our schools and our workplaces and try to at least protect ourselves that way. Yeah, I brilliant. I, I sadly had to accompany my, my mother through a, a, a cancer journey very late in life. She didn't get it until she was 89 and in fact passed away at 91 of, of something totally unrelated. But I was devastated when I took her into, um, into the hospital for her, for her chemo to find that they would come round and give the cancer patients these sugary drinks and cookies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it was all done from a place of love, but yeah. it's like, yeah. what are you doing? This is the worst yeah, stuff. It's absurd. It's, it's crazy. completely absurd. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and there is a sugar cancer link as well. You know, clearly. It's, it's clearly people think, right. Mm-hmm. People see it as feeding the cancer cells and there's some mechanism there too. So it's, it is, you know, culture culturally accepted and we have to change that but the only way we can change it is is with with hard facts and and that's exactly mm-hmm. what work like yours is producing for which i'm eternally grateful because i think you know mm-hmm. it's black and white there's not much that that you can really argue about it so 
I thank you for that. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sci- science and activism. You know, there's lots Absolutely. of data that we ignore. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just shocked as I look at the clock um, that that our time is slipping away from us. It's almost gone. So is there any um, really important factor or or something that we've we've not talked about that you really want to get across? Well, I want to say how much I appreciate our conversation and the work that you do and, you know, dissemination of science. We live in kind of an anti-science era. I feel that we, you across the world, us here, we are all overwhelmed right now. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to feel hopeless, to feel that what we do doesn't matter. And we need to do exactly the opposite. And even the little things, you know, seemingly little things that we do in our daily life, in our microcosms, for the people around us, that's what we all need to do even more. That's that's what matters. So I just want to say that we we can apply, you know, what we know about what our, you know, what our values are, which ends up being good for our health. All of that we need to just keep doing with vigor and on steroids and be transmitting that culture to our children. Uh, I, I echo that 100%. Absolutely. I know. Elizabeth, there are three little questions that I like to ask all of my guests when they come on. And um, London Heal is all about mind, body, spirit, medicine, and the importance of looking at, at people in a holistic way. And I like to capture that in the idea of health, happiness, and serenity. So for you personally, how do you define health? What does that actually mean to you? Well, I like the word vitality. I think I used to think of, you know, health as, okay, disease-free, but mm-hmm. it gets all of us. We all, we're all going to live with some type of disability. So I think particularly the well-being in our mind, would, you know, and the feeling of vitality, it gets harder with an aging body, but it's, it's something that we can foster and part of that is, of course, how socially connected we are and whether we feel, you know, purpose and meaning in our daily life. So I think of well-being as both, you know, ability to, to do what we want in our body, to still be well enough, as, and especially to feel the vitality in our mind and the purpose and the love. Right. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, isn't it? Purpose is still at the top of that pyramid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it. What about happiness? What what do you do to get happy? And do you even think it's something worth pursuing? Because I think a lot of people perhaps confuse happiness with pleasure and they're not the same thing. Right, right. I, I would agree with you. I think that I it's a mixed word because we've been taught that happiness means, you know, how we look and material pursuits and the kind of short-term pleasure. Um, I... I think it goes back to my to what we were talking about the eudaimonic happiness that that mm-hmm. brings a sense of well-being which is um which is a kind of how you live each day in that perspective rather than um doing things that acutely make us feel pleasure. Mm-hmm. Right. Brilliant. And lastly serenity you talked about having a yoga practice but I think it's um 
so important, whether it's meditation or something else, that people find something in the day where they can just actively turn down the noise. So other than yoga, is there a practice that you do on a daily basis to get into well, serenity? Yes, um, I love the word serenity. I lead a very stressful life for many reasons, and I, I'm just a better person when I can do yoga or meditation. I am, <laughs> you know, just less reactive. I'm able to, you know, maintain equanimity much more, and I need it. It's just, you know, in my social location and my circumstances, I couldn't live really without well without yoga. And I do love mindfulness meditation. I'm less of a sitter um, than, uh, you know, than doing kind of moving, moving activities like meditation. I'm sorry, like, like sannyasa yoga, but um, I still do love meditation. I love what it's taught me. Um, and I kind of, I'm actually teaching it now to parents of children with autism. So that I find very gratifying, even though it's not going to be a world-changing research program i can just share so much of um hard lessons learned you know over a decade of my personal life and try to share it with people who are um who are behind me and can benefit from you know perspectives and strategies that they weren't taught in school (laughs) and it makes you sleep better too and that's uh, that's something we actually didn't talk about but it's also a very profound effect too isn't it on on your telomeres yes yes i mean the sleep is probably more important than we'll ever realize right because it is the Mm -hmm. deep the the restorative activity you know besides these mind body things it's when we when we do the repair when we reset our our um our neural pathways etc right so Alyssa, thank you so much for taking the time it was a wonderful interview i could talk to you for hours and hours and hours but i know sadly that you don't have them. <laughs> <laughs> it was so hope, much fun thank you i do hope thank that you, you come fun. back and uh, and talk to us again and one thing i did want to say a very personal thank you for is that the reason why london heal this podcast exists is actually because of you so you've been the one person i wanted to talk to from day one because i felt that your work with um, looking at the effects of mind, body, and using telomeres was the most robust, concrete proof that there was a connection between the mind body that nobody needs to talk about this anymore. And I thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for your appreciation. And it's, um, it's, you know, it's wonderful when people um, like you see the the significance and all of the, you know, rather than just kind of viewing it as, oh, it's just a biomarker. It really is a kind of an amazing connection that if we remember, that's how our, you know, body mind works. Exactly. We can be better to it. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Thanks so much. And I hope I can welcome you back on the show at another time. Thank you. I'd love to have a wonderful day. So dear listeners, I hope you really enjoyed that episode with um, Alyssa Apple. I uh, have been waiting to talk to her, as I said, since the dawn of London Heel, and it took a long time, but we managed, and I was absolutely delighted because, as I said, um, 
looking at telomeres, which are not a biomarker, but such a very clear role player in, in the health and longevity of our cells and us at the long time. And the connection that she made with the mind body is, is just such concrete, solid evidence that I think that that just puts that whole conversation to bed. And anybody who still keeps it going is just not really looking at the good science. And that science is amazing and robust. So the take-home message, I guess, was everything that we've all been talking about for, for a long time now here on London Hill, and we'll continue to talk about all of those things that we know are intrinsically good for your mind, your body, and your spirit are good for your telomeres too. And that means ultimately your health and longevity, as Alyssa so beautifully said. It's a question of health span and not just lifespan. And so... I would suggest you just go out and be good to those telomeres because they care. If you enjoyed this episode and you found it of value, please distribute this information. That's really what we're all about, trying to get this important information out to those who could benefit from it and who need it and who value it. And it's so much easier for us to get more listeners, more people to um, tune in and hear these important messages from our extraordinary guests, such as Alyssa. Um, please rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, pop over to our Facebook page and have a look over there and maybe like the page too, because as I said, the bigger we get, the more reach that we have to get this important information out there. If you would like extended show notes for future episodes of London Heal, then please go over to londonheal.com and sign up there, become a London Heal Insider, and you will receive those extended show notes for future episodes along with all the links. And so, my dear listeners, that leaves me to wish you, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs> <laughs>